The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hello, I'm Thomas Salerno, and you're listening to The Secrets of Tora Tora Tora, the epic-scale 1970 World War II film about the Day of Infamy, the Japanese attack on the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. And joining me today on the panel are Dom Bettinelli. Hello, Dom. Buzzai! <laughs> hey, Thomas. Very appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And Patrick Mason. Hey there, Pat. Howdy, Thomas. And be sure to follow along with the secrets of movies and TV shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, or on your podcast app of choice. And you can also follow along with the show on the StarQuest YouTube channel. And please do us a favor by sharing the podcast with your friends because we've got a lot more great movies and shows to discuss in the future and you don't want to miss each new episode. You can follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on Twitter slash X where we are at SQPN or on Instagram where we are at StarQuest Network. So I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie because I... I think like both of you, I am a huge World War II buff. Yes. I've loved this stuff since I was very young because both my grandfathers were World War II veterans and I didn't get to know either of them very well. And so I, it's been a topic that's always fascinated me because of that family connection and wanting to get to know the grandfathers that I never really knew. And, and this is one of the World War II movies that has really been, it's one that I go back to not often. It's almost like every year I almost think to myself, I should watch it. <laughs> yes, yes. What about you guys? For me, I've been a World War II history buff since I was in high school. I started with a lot of the Pacific War stuff. I read lots of books about Pearl Harbor, Midway, and the battles across the Pacific. More recently, I've been reading a lot about the European theater, although I recently watched The Pacific which is an mm. epic, the sequel to The Band of Brothers, very different from Tor Tor Tor, very, made it a very different time. But I love Tor Tor Tor. This and The Battle of Midway, the, the movie Midway, are two, yeah. uh, like, I remember watching these with my dad when I was a kid and uh, just how awesome they were. They seemed so epic, so big. And I, I showed my kids a few years ago, maybe a little too soon because it's a long movie and with lots of yeah. Japanese subtitles, I ended up reading most of the movie to them. And, but they still, I was, when I was telling them I was doing this, they still remember it and they still enjoy it. And my oldest, my daughter, who's 17, she's a big military history buff herself. And she's, she thought, yeah, this is a, a great movie. This, this movie is deep in my DNA. What about you, Pat? Yes. My, my grandfather on my mother's side, the Schmitz, he was first generation. So his grand or his father had come over from Germany and he was not able to join until uh, after the war. And so he, he joined up into the army air corps slash air force effectively. But my grandfather on my father's side, he was in like the first wave of recruits for the army air corps. And he flew bombers out of 
uh, he bombed France <laughs> and Germany out of England. We actually got to go over one time, me and my dad and my uncle, to to go see the old airfield where he had flown out of in England, in Atterbridge. Wow. And he, he actually got shot down over France in the German occupied portion and was successfully smuggled out by the French resistance. So I, that's amazing. Yeah. We were going through some old papers and we found my mom's father's demobilization papers. And we actually found out what he did in them because we really didn't know. We had heard that he worked with radios. So at first I thought, okay, he's one of the guys with those big backpack radios like in a squad, the communications guy. But no, it turns out he was actually an engineer. He built like these back then state of the art wireless transmitter towers during for wireless communications. And he did this during the Battle of the Bulge under fire. Wow. (laughs) He had to build under he had to build these big and his his unit got a a citation for bravery under fire because they had to build this stuff. We didn't know any of that until discovering these papers and it's and he was my namesake he was he was thomas murray and so i'm named after him and so it was so cool to come across those tangible papers and i never he died before i was born so i never met him it's funny he never talked about the war but he loved watching world war ii movies Mm. he would watch Patton. my mom tells me over and over oh yeah so if i had ever gotten a chance to talk to him we would have had a lot to talk about yeah wow that i can remember both my grandparents at my graduation dinner started talking about it. And I was probably, my dad says that's the first time he really ever talked about it. And it was, too, it was that sort of that generation. They didn't really want to talk about the war, but they would talk to each other about it. Yeah. And if you were lucky enough to be in the room, you could get some details. Patrick, you're going to probably enjoy the new Apple TV plus series coming up. Masters of the year, which is like the third installment in this band of brothers series that they're doing covering the eighth air force flying out of England to bombing missions over France and oh, Germany. Wow. It's coming, okay. Coming up in January, I think, as we record. That yeah. soon. Yeah. Like oh, I keep nice. thinking about, man, I, I don't know if I want to support Apple or Apple, but <laughs> they just keep coming out with shows. I have to watch. Like the MonsterVerse is coming like, out. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> just, I'm so glad uh, to be an Apple person. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, if, if you ever want to see a picture of my grandfather, there's a, a guy who's, who his grandfather was in the same unit wrote a book called much too pretty and it actually has a picture of the unit on the book and so my oh, grandfather's cool. the captain in that picture nice. so yeah it's and his uh bomber was called ain't, ain't misbehaving if i remember correctly nice. oh that's a cool name i <laughs> yeah. like that dom you mentioned like the scale of this movie i feel like they don't make movies like this anymore and I'm I'm not a camera person but i i feel like they must have filmed this in some sort of insane wide frame because that's what it looks like it doesn't look like other movies (laughs) that are made now it's an epic movie just in the scale the number of stars you look at the cast list it is a massive production it was two productions essentially we should probably mention that it was yes there was a u.s film crew and there was a japanese film crew filming separately the two parts of this movie that right there just shows you like how big the scale of that. And when you think about it, the people making this movie, many of them probably remembered or even fought in World War II. This was still their generation making this movie. And so it makes it even that more meaningful when you watch it, I think. Yeah, definitely. And it's like 
I I don't know. Yeah, I, I love how they bring the two sides together because it really gives you that perspective. It's something they wouldn't have done with if this movie were about America versus the Germans. They probably wouldn't have done it this way. To have a German because, film crew? Yeah. Yeah, and, and to have so much of the German perspective. Because, yeah. And the, the this time watching the movie, I really thought a lot about it. That like, okay, like when the Allies fought Nazi Germany, obviously they're the Nazis and they want to take over the world and commit genocide and do all this stuff but it feels like with america and japan as you watch the movie you get the sense like this didn't need to happen but it becomes inevitable because people on both sides either want it to happen or don't do enough to stop it from happening and it's that kind of it reminds me of that book about world war one it's called i think it's called the sleepwalkers where like the the different countries in Europe just stumbled right into war without even knowing it. And that's what it feels like with America and Japan. Like obviously America had problems with Japan's expansionism in China and the things that it was doing there. But it almost seems the the way the movie tells it, it really seems like this was avoidable and it didn't need to happen. In fact, the way the movie tells it from I think is that in Japan there were two sides. There was yeah. the army really wanted this to happen. And Tojo, who is the, mm. the foreign minister who basically running the government, running things in Japan at the time, they the army wanted this to happen. Everybody else didn't. Japan was the empire and needed to be great, but it didn't need to go to war with America. That was and, and that becomes clear. And F- Yamamoto was famously you know, opposed to going to war with America. We'll get, I, I'm sure we get into that as we go through our discussion. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. It th- This movie feels like on both sides and on the American side, just the inevitability, the missed opportunities to avoid the devastation. And it's just watching this yeah. movie every time I'm like, oh, if only someone listened, if only <laughs> someone picked up the phone or paid attention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's yeah. written like a tragedy that way yes. where it's like a slow motion train wreck that you see coming and you're just like oh yeah it's but yeah it's, like it, just, it reminds me of the romeo the end of romeo and juliet where the basically they send the message but he gets outrun by the other guy and so the tragedy occurs but it didn't have to and it's just that over and over and over again yes. and over again. somebody it's what makes it even more tragic is it like it's bad if something something bad happens. If a 9-11 happens, a terrorist attack, that's bad. But then if it turns out that we knew, had all of the data ahead of time and we knew that there were, who the guys were and what planes they were going to be on and we could and we just by incompetence didn't stop them or, or that sort of thing or just bad luck, it makes the tragedy all the worse, I think. And, and you get the sense, too, that like unlike the Nazi regime, This isn't a government that's completely all run by evil people. It's very hard to wrap the head or wrap my mind around how the Japanese government worked at the time, because the emperor was both a figurehead and not. And then you also had the civil government, which was under this continuous threat of government by assassination. So like any given time, the prime minister, the army official might try and kill the prime minister or the Navy guy might try and kill a cabinet member or and then you have the army and the Navy constantly. You talk about rivalries within the service in the U.S. and they they, somewhat joking and somewhat not joking. But like over there, it was very much not joking. It was they hated each other. (laughs) It was no joke. They they would try to kill each other. 
Yeah. And the army just, the Japanese army just continuously via the invasion of Manchuria committed Japan to this course of action where they had to keep increasing the Navy and the army to continue to invade. Like it, it was just a sort mm-hmm. of roller coaster that the army kind of got them on. And, and right. It's like they need resources to continue the war effort. But because they're continuing the war effort, America keeps putting sanctions on them. So they don't have the resources to continue the war effort. And then they're like, we'll just attack America then and then seize the resources. Right. Yeah. And it's like because at the time, America was the source of a lot of the resources of, the, of war material, which is what made us so powerful in World War Two, because we had the mines in Colorado or Montana and Wyoming. And we had oil fields and because mind you, Middle Eastern oil fields were not discovered at this point. They were not a thing yet. Mm-hmm. Those were post-World War II. And yeah, we Japan really depended on us for a lot of things. And we kept sanctioning them and they kept getting angrier. And you know, like you said, they're, they're going to go to war to take what they need. At least that was the, the, the army's point of view. The rationale. Yeah. And I think that's a a good point for us to dive in really to the Japanese point of view, because as you said, they they essentially filmed two movies, but they're interspersed in the film itself. But we can separate them out. That opening scene I want to highlight because the music that's associated with the Japanese segments, man, something about it. I don't know that that tune gets stuck in my head sometimes. Mm. And I oh, whenever I see footage of the Imperial Japanese Navy. Yes, that musical theme from Tora 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 comes back into my mind. It's an epic music, but at the same time, it's haunting and ominous. And yeah, well, I just like whenever I hear that, I just think Imperial Japanese Navy. Right. In my head. It's I just love the music of that. segment. And there is a long opening segment. This That is yep. a long and it's basically the changeover ceremony for the commander in chief for Yamamoto to take over. and. One of the things that strikes me about the opening is the, the the Japanese Navy, Japan is an Asian culture, it has very different cultural origins, but the Navy itself looked very modern and very much like the West, had a lot of the Western traditions, the bells and the uniforms and the pipe, the uh, piping aboard. And I looked it up, by 1920, the Japanese Navy was the third largest in the world after the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy. And that compares that to 1854 when they had virtually no Navy, when you know, Commodore Perry showed up and opened up Japan to the world. And they like so in 70 odd years, they went from almost nothing to the third largest Navy in the world. That is a remarkable growth in a power in Japan. It's hard to understate how strong Japan was at the start of World War II. The fact that they're able to muster six aircraft carriers for this strike force yes is phenomenal that's a lot of muscle and that's not counting all the escort ships and they talk several times in movies what if we're detected what do we do the fact that they're not detected one of those just i don't know accidents of history like it's it's astounding right that it that they weren't detected with a force that large there were a couple of close calls that were they aren't in the movie but there were a couple of close calls where PBYs, the the, sea, the patrol sea boats, saw something, but nobody took it seriously, and and it was the, it was in the movie. This whole thing, like they kept thinking that 
the attack was going to be these five transports heading toward Malaysia or Philippines, or it was not going to, there was no sense that it was going to be Hawaii, which at the time was U.S. territory, not a state, of course. But yeah, there was the, the, the fact that they, they were able to bring this task force, this massive fleet within range and execute almost a perfect attack on their end. It was almost perfect. And, and if insanely well-planned, they stressed that in the movie, Uh, they thought of every contingency, every little detail, because they had to kind of like the allies with D-Day, they had to think of every little detail because if you do one thing wrong, it could snowball into destroying the whole operation. I really love that scene with Kurushima. The planner, the senior planner, where he didn't come <laughs> Gandhi, to dinner. They call yeah, yeah, they calls him Gandhi, yeah. and he's he's the, they send someone to get him, and he's in his cabin, and he's got like a monk's robe over his head, and he's obsessively, and he's like obsessively repeating the different parts of the plan, and all the like he like this guy, he's become obsessed with the plan, and it's just amazing. And then it doesn't come out in the movie. Things like Fushida, who was the air commander, like the he led the the attack relentless drilling of his pilots and they were so well prepared for this this fight that's the thing the zero was was the finest fighter plane in the world yes at this time yes we didn't have anything to compare to it at the time we had the the f4f and the old f3f but we like the newer planes that were that would come along soon that would match up weren't there yet so our planes were just even if we could have got them off the ground they would have been overmatched in the air. And that was like early on in the midway fight was a similar situation. But it's like Yamamoto knows that he can't fight a long war with America. Yes. Like he, he mentions at one point, if we fight the Americans, we can't stop at Hawaii or San Francisco. We'll have to march into Washington and dictate peace terms in the White House. And then he says, I, if you give me 18 months, I can raise hell. But after that, all bets are off. He knew that after that, they'd essentially run out of stuff. They'd run out of supplies. They'd run out of men. He had, he's like, you can give me 18 months. And then after that, it will devolve into a war of attrition that Japan can't possibly win. But he also knew that America was the character of America. He like he called America the sleeping giant. That's one of the lines in the movie. And that's taken from his, something he actually said. America is a sleeping giant. We we may win for six months, but after that, the giant will awake. I, I copied down this this quote he makes to the to the assembled staff at one point. He says, many misinformed Japanese believe that America is a nation divided isolationist and that Americans are only interested in enjoying a life of luxury and are spiritually and morally corrupt. Which sound familiar to anyone yet? <laughs> yeah. But that is a great mistake. If war becomes inevitable, America would be the most formidable foe that we have ever fought. And I'm like, wow. It, it, we, all, we look back and we say, oh, America, the greatest generation, they were ready. But in, in one sense, they, before World War II, they, weren't, they were not much unlike us. They had their divisions, the, the, those isolationist voices. And there was a lot of spiritual and moral corruption. He's not wrong. There was a lot of that. And the war galvanized Americans. I feel like there's a recognition by the Japanese filmmakers here of the mistake that Japan made in its assessment of American moral courage at the time. And I think that's an interesting aspect. I think it, it, 
in a lot of ways, it's because they're coming off of the, the Sino-Japanese war, right? And just destroying Russia. Like they, they just right. do whatever they want to the Russians. Oh, they mop the floor with Russia. And then, and then the preceding war with the Chinese where they're, they're pretty much head, heads, heads and tails over the Chinese as well. And so there is this thought about, okay, we can, we can put up a really good fight. And you look at the previous wars or one, and then all of the smaller wars that come from it and everything is is a war of peace terms right so like everybody fights they fight to a standstill or they get to a point where one wins and then it's a uh, okay you can keep this area and i'm going to take this area from you and we're going to negotiate peace terms and then everybody goes back to their own country and i it it very much feels like a lot of the japanese leadership at the time thought thought that this was the kind of war they could fight with america Unfortunately, they didn't read much American war history. (laughs) (laughs) Unconditional surrender. Yeah, which where we've you look at our history and our fight and and really the War of 1812 being the big blotch on that one. (laughs) We we have a tendency. It's an all or nothing sort of a deal. Uh, We backed off on on the Mexican-American War. It didn't take all of Mexico. We just took half of it. Although some wanted to take it. Yeah, some wanted to go. Yeah, some wanted to take it all. There were a lot of voices. And so the concept of of this unconditional surrender was probably, it occurred, you can tell it occurred to Yamamoto because he was like, we're going to have to go all the way. Like, we've got to go into Washington. This is going to go down to somebody invading somebody else's capital. But I think a lot of other people were like, no, it'll get to a point where, you know, the, we'll sue for peace and we'll get the Philippines or we'll, we'll keep some of these places we've taken. We'll keep Manchuria. And and it just was that's especially with how this attack happens, how well it goes for the Japanese, how poorly it goes for the Americans and the timing. Just not going to happen. <laughs> I read that Eisenhower and and Marshall and MacArthur and many of the other American generals at this time were very close students of Ulysses Grant and and yeah. Tecumseh Sherman and their style of warfare, where they were like, "We will grind the Confederacy into dust, yeah. right, until it's over." And they basically just took that and applied it to Germany and Japan. Total war. You know, we will get yeah. them. Yeah, total war. They will be on their knees so that this can never happen again. Right. Yeah, and having MacArthur in the in the Pacific, Douglas, the situation, MacArthur right. <laughs> never <laughs> never missed the best photo op he could get. He, yep. he was going to make sure that we won the war, and it was spectacular. <laughs> it's like MacArthur and Patton are two sides of the same coin, aren't they? <laughs> yes. So they would not have liked each other oh, at all. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> they needed those egos need to be on opposite sides of the planet to have enough room for the globe. Them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and having just come off World War One and seeing Germany rise again out of those ashes to become a threat again, I think everybody realized that you can't you can't just have a peace and let them do it again. Like you needed to, the axis needed to be totally defeated. And otherwise this evil will rise again, which is a little ironic given that then we allied with Russia and the Soviet Union. And that became the problem. <laughs> there were some who advocated that we should keep, including Patton, I think, who advocated we should keep marching to Moscow. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. yeah. Just keep rolling. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things I really th- thought was interesting about this film, the Japanese side, is that Akira Kurosawa was originally tapped to direct the Japanese side, and he was involved in preparations for two years, but he but he basically quit 
fired, agreed to walk away, whatever you want to, because I think he just felt like his vision for what this movie should be was different. And I think it's interesting because it's the movie doesn't it doesn't hang a lot on character development. And it's it's almost like a documentary in style. Yes. It's yes. not like Michael Bay's 2001 Pearl Harbor, uh, which was a, a dramatic <laughs> comedy, a dramatic romance. <laughs> one. Sorry, yeah, Freudian so. dramatic romance, a war romance movie, which was very little basing in reality. Whereas this one felt like we want to tell an accurate story of the events of Pearl Harbor. And I think Kurosawa wanted more of a drama. I think it, it, it is, was my sense of it. But it's but I despite the fact that there's a huge cast and there's not a lot of, I guess, traditional character development in the traditional sense. I still empathize with a lot of these characters. Oh, yeah. And what they're going through. Yeah. Yamamoto is, comes across as a very sympathetic figure. In fact, I don't feel like anybody on the Japanese side feels like the enemy. In fact, I don't feel like. There's a Tojo, maybe. Right. So, I think it's, he, he becomes almost, I, don't, I was going to say caricature, but that's actually how he really was. But, was. Yeah. <laughs> but people are caricatures. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel like that there's a traditional antagonist protagonist in this movie. Now, clearly, it, mm-hmm. the Japanese are the bad guys because we're Americans. But if I were, I'm just trying to imagine a <laughs> Japanese person watching this film. And saying, look at look at how well we we did this. And sure, there was some misunderstandings and some miscommunication that meant the attack happened before they knew it it was going to come. That's just bad luck. We really we declared war and we did a great job at it. And I could see I could see someone being able to say that. I felt so bad for Ambassador Nomura when he goes in for that last meeting with Hall, because you could tell on his face he never wanted this. Yeah. He didn't want this to happen. And the, and the whole comedy of errors with with getting the message typed up and everything, and he couldn't get it in there in time. And he just knows like because his job as a diplomat is to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Right. And he just looks so defeated and demoralized when he he tries to offer Hull solace, but he's not having it. He's just get out. I think that's why they sent the other guy to Washington, the other ambassador, Kurusu, because yeah. he was he was he was a hawk. He he was more because he's he's the guy who signed the the Axis Alliance in Germany. Like he was yep. on that side, whereas Nomura, he liked America. He liked Americans. He didn't want to go to war with America. He liked the Americans that he dealt with in the diplomatic circle. And it's the the poor guy. And then they have this comedy of errors where they're having to type decode and type up this message and it's like cl- the classic oh and get it done in 10 minutes I, I don't we had to send the typist home because it's too high security top secret mm-hmm. yeah. and meanwhile we've already our guys already have it on, on our side that sort of thing uh which actually i want to talk about the decoding yes. stuff uh, when we get to the american side but yeah i felt so bad like you could see the actor was doing such a great job of portraying how numora was devastated at having delivered this message yeah, and, and you think about Nomura, he's in line with both the civilian government and the emperor. Like, they didn't want this to happen. Like, right. almost flat. There were portions of the, the parliament that were for it, of course. Every, all the, all the, the prime minister and the higher-ups, they're all dodging bullets while trying to sue for peace. <laughs> Hiding in their house. You know, I, I want to say the prime minister had an attempt on his life running up to the, oh, yeah. the and he had to hide in... in 
like a closet or something. And his, his brother ended up getting killed for him because his brother looked like him and they, and he attended his own funeral. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, and that was the kind of government that was, that was under play. We had an episode of Jimmy Akin's mysterious world on the end of the war in Japan, basically the, the the attempted coup. I love that episode. You guys did a fantastic job with that. I'm trying to find the link. I listen to it every once in a while. Okay. So it's coup. Yeah, the Desperate Coup in Japan, episode 113. So if you go to mysterious.fm slash 113. We also did a couple episodes on Pearl Harbor because there's all these theories about was Pearl Harbor an inside job? Was there more to it than what we know? So we did a couple of episodes on that, and that was a little later. Episodes 184 and 185. So mysterious.fm slash 184 and slash 185. But I remember when we did that episode on the on the coup, just how chaotic it was in japan the the politically and desperately dangerous and we don't get a lot of that in this movie we get the sense that there was chaos and opposition but we don't get like the we we get hinted at that there's this assassinations i think they claim uh, yamamoto was a coward at the beginning because he ran away from tokyo where he was vice minister for the Navy to become commander chief of the Navy. And they, they, some of the officers saw that as cowardly and it's interesting because they don't explain that, but you you have to pick it up from context. What, why they're saying that. Yeah, And you can see how there's all these rivalries when they're, when they're sitting down to plan the whole thing. And the one guy raises not unreasonable objections. The other guys to criticize the plan is defeatist. <laughs> and like they almost have a duel with one another, right. basically. And I'm like, I'm like to criticize the plan is defeatist is not good. Like management. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that is that is bad. That is, that's how plans fail. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I liked how they showed the mindset of early adoption of the airplane as being the a yes. number one yeah. thing going forward. This was going to be what was going to win you the war, the sea battle, the sea control, effectively. And right. you had folks, I remember you had folks in the meeting who were still all about the battleships. No, no, this is going to mm-hmm. be ship-to-ship combat. And you have that sort of, okay, they sunk a couple of carriers in the Mediterranean. Maybe we can pull off something similar. And then they pull off Pearl Harbor, and it's clear clear as day. <laughs> right. Like, the airplane is it. <laughs> like, yes. Pearl Harbor was going. the death knell of the battleship. Yeah. Yes, literally and yeah. figuratively, yeah. I mean, that yeah. it was... That that clearly showed the superiority of planes over over battleships. To transfer over to to the American side, Dom, you mentioned the 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 magic Operation intercepts. Magic, yeah, Operation Magic, where they're intercepting the the diplomatic cables of Japan and they're decoding them. And it's also interesting, like you I, you mentioned how you you've done a couple of episodes of Mysterious World on the different Pearl Harbor conspiracies. It's interesting. There is a line in the movie where. One of the guys involved with magic says, we don't trust certain men close to the president. You're right. And in fact, and I was like, ooh, what does that mean? Uh, because they don't explain it. Right. And, and Jimmy, in our episode, there is at least one oh, one of the president's close advisors. I should have looked it up, but I forget his name, who was untrustworthy. We may have been working the other side or at least working under the table to bring about peace or to keep America out of the war, put it that way. And so they were right to be concerned. And I, I thought it was very interesting that the behind the closed door, the, the, the diagram, who the 12 apostles, they were called, who could yeah. see the, the magic intercepts. We should explain the U.S. had broken the Japanese codes and could decode their messages that they were being sent 
back and forth, which was a huge advantage. And we had the same advantage with Enigma in the, against the Germans. It's not overstating it to say th- those those actions changed the war <laughs> pretty much in, in many ways, won us the war. And but having this Operation Magic. But what was interesting was like at one point, Roosevelt wasn't wasn't allowed to get the the intercepts because they he, knocked him off the list because yeah. he was being careless with them or something. Yeah. Threw it in the waste paper basket. That's yes. They said in the, in the movie. And, <laughs> and Roosevelt's a tough one because he's a very enigmatic, enigmatic figure. We have a lot about what he did and the things he said in public, but very much like Washington, we don't really have a lot of his private thoughts. It, it He was very guarded and he was very mm. political. And so him like trying to figure out what, what was he trying to do or what, what, what was his, what were his thoughts about this is, it's a very difficult nut to crack. It's interesting that the more I read about FDR, the less I like him. Yeah. <laughs> Some ways it's like that with Churchill. I like Churchill, but there are aspects. That he, was, he was not a perfect. He was a flawed man. He was flawed. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Interesting that they did not have Roosevelt in this movie. They did oh, not yeah. think it was important that he was important to the overall narrative of what happens. Since so I think that's a fascinating omission i don't think it's wrong necessarily but i think it's interesting that they didn't include him it's really the only fault i have with the film is that they don't have the speech yeah um ah, that's like yeah. the only the only thing the michael bay film did better is they had the speech in it <laughs> and as, if you ever watch the michael bay film don't just stop there don't watch the rest of it just that's, <laughs> just that's, watch that's, that part that's, that's go find it good. on youtube yeah <laughs> watch, be enough. it watch, is an incredible speech yeah yeah it, it is amazing. It, it's almost Churchillian. It's almost like he studied the way Churchill would deliver a speech like that and and did it in an American context. Right. The, the will stop him at the beaches speech of Churchill. Right. Yeah. It's it's at that level. I wonder if they left Roosevelt out because Roosevelt's mind was more on the Atlantic anyway. You know, right. and then and when we even when we get in the war, we sign on to the Germany first policy. Where the idea is we will do since Germany's the more immediate threat to Britain and America, we'll we need to defeat them first and Japan can be left till later. So even though Roosevelt loved the Navy, he used to be assist, I believe, assistant secretary of the Navy at one point in his political career. He loved the Navy to death, but he really wasn't that focused on the on the Pacific, he was focused on the undeclared naval war against Germany's U-boats <laughs> right. in the Atlantic. That was yes. going on. The war right. we've been fighting for two years, but no, we, yeah. we're not. We're not really fighting this war. We're not. Yes. <laughs> Which Hitler mentions in his speech, by the way, declaring war on America. Hitler's like, well, we've basically been fighting you for two years anyway. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's like the American undeclared war in Ukraine. We won't get into contemporary politics, Ugh. but you know that there are proxy wars. Yeah, there yeah, there are special wars. forces soldiers running around in Ukraine. I know that I'm certain of that much. One of the things I wanted to mention, and this might be a good place to, to bring it up here, but is the absence of on-screen titles for people, lower thirds, no no mention of the places, the times. All of that is absent. There's a, there's a subtitle for the Japanese for some, for Americans to read, but there's no like explanation. This is relying on the audience to understand who and what. It's an interesting, like a World War II movie made today would need to tell you these things because this audience doesn't know it. But back then, people mm-hmm. would know Admiral Kimmel was the admiral in charge in in. Pearl Harbor and General Short, their names get mentioned, but like people would know these things though. And and I think that's it's fascinating 
how they don't spoon feed the audience in this in the movie with that. Yeah, that I do have to admit that was I, there were parts I had to rewatch. I'm like, wait a minute, who is this again? Yes, <laughs> I get it's a lot of people. Yeah, I kept okay, the yeah, Wikipedia right, right. entry with all the cast lists open while I was watching. I'm like, nice. who's that guy? Wait, who's that guy? Yeah, <laughs> I kept getting the admiral and the general mixed up. <laughs> oh, General, yeah, general yeah, Short and Admiral Short. Kimmel. Yeah, yeah. Like, and this was big short. I can't remember. <laughs> it was crazy the mixed signals coming from Washington. Yes. Where they're they're reading that that one warning they send them, and it's like, well, we don't anticipate hostile action. Right. And Kimmel's then why send a warning at all? <laughs> exactly. If you don't anticipate hostile action. And so you could see why mistakes were made, because the, the people at the front line, the commanders, they don't know what to think. They're getting all these con this contradictory. Kimmel says at one point, I wish Washington would just give us the full inside story. Well, and that's the thing and is they were not getting the magic intercepts. Even the overseas commanders of these important bases didn't have access to the intelligence. And so they had to rely on some flunky at the Pentagon kind of giving them vague warnings of, of things. Yeah. One of the things I, I read about this movie is it rehabilitates husbanding Kimmel and Short. Because they were railroaded. Yes. After they, Pearl Harbor. They became scapegoats for what, and they were, Nimitz took Kimmel's place, and and there was, they made mistakes. Short's insistence on putting all of the, the airplanes together in the middle of the field, where they made the Oh, what, what, what does the one guy say? The, the one guy says, a one-eyed monkey hanging from a 10-cent balloon could scatter all the planes to hell with one hand grenade. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. That's a great line. But he was worried about in sabotage, people sneaking on the field and sabotaging mm -hmm. the planes. That is a reasonable you know, concern. And I think this movie, 30 years later, rehabilitates their reputation a bit and shows, look, it's not all about their mistakes. They were dealt a bad hand. And I, I'm glad that the movie really does shows that that there wasn't all their error and the, those mixed signals get to the point where they're dangerous at one point they're they're questioning is washington telling us that we have to let these people attack us if they show up because yeah. there's that one note that they get where it says we desire that japan makes the first hostile action right yeah. So don't and they're like, first, wait man. a minute, what does that mean? <laughs> so we're supposed yeah. to take yeah. the punch, the yeah, and, and then and then fight back. There was so many really bad, like you mentioned, mixed messages, and it's interesting to see like the simultaneous like blindness by some Americans and others who saw it coming. That it does show that like so others who like the C Colonel Bratton in the Operation Magic Office, the intelligence analyst. Who, who was off by a week, <laughs> but yeah. he knew exactly what was going to happen. They're going to attack Pearl Harbor on Sunday morning, November 30th. And, and like he, he knew that it was coming. He was just off by a week. And he was basing that off of the deadlines for certain actions, the diplomatic actions. Like this has to be, this message has to be delivered by this date because stuff is going to happen afterward, which like, to paraphrase the Japanese because something's happening after that. And what's the something? Like, duh. And so I really liked that you had Colonel Bratton and the other one, the Navy guy, I don't remember his name, <clears throat> running around trying on December, the evening of December 6th, that, or the morning of December oh, yeah. 7th. His wife is driving. trying to get somebody to listen to him. <laughs> that, every conversation with his wife in the car is, oh, is so amazing. Honey, he says very kindly, honey. Would you shut up and drive? Shut up and drive. <laughs> <laughs> I said it to my wife. She'd pull over and push me on the curb. 
Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, no, there would, no, she would not be driving after that point, <laughs> unless she was driving away from me as I was standing outside the car. I, I think, too, we should point out some of the good things that the, the on-site commanders do. Kimmel very wisely sends Admiral Halsey in the Enterprise away. Yes, yeah. He sends to probe for the enemy. Enterprise and the Lexington, he sends out to sea. And then Halsey, he says, do you want to take the battleships? And Halsey says, no, I want to leave them. They're too slow. They're too slow. They'll slow me down if I end, if I end up actually fighting the Japanese out there. And in fact, doesn't Kimmel tell Halsey, if you find the Japanese, use your discretion, like basically shoot yep. them if you, if you find them, which is shoot first, b- yeah. basically start the war. I, I think everyone knew war was coming. Just was inevitable in one sense, at least on the American side. That was a good move by by Kimmel because the aircraft carriers, we should make explicit, the aircraft carriers were the premier target because everyone knew on the Japanese side, at least the, the commanders, that the carriers were the key. And they wanted those carriers in Pearl Harbor. They just that was what they wanted, the big fat carriers and sink them right there, their peers. And we, by the grace of God, those ships were at sea. Yeah. They weren't there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because they get that pretty early on. They get that message. You need to increase your your flights around the island and around the base. And I just I remember that because as a manager, I go through this every time I get an order from up above. Oh, I need to do more with less. Thanks. I appreciate it. Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I do. We don't have enough planes and pilots built in the whole United States to, to fill this airspace so we could see anything. The B-17s. Yeah, we need to patrol yeah. the B-7. We need 150 B-17s. There aren't 150 B-17s in the world. Like, yeah. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. We hadn't ramped up mass production yet. Right. Of B-17s. What, one of the funniest, it's funny in a tragic way, but one of the funniest comedy of error things that happens is the, the thing with the telephone at the radar station. Yeah. First of all, they don't have a phone. You go to the initially. gas station. <laughs> go to the gas. The one guy says, yeah, there's a gasoline station about a mile down the road. They must have a phone. <laughs> and I'm like, that's encouraging. Not everybody had a phone back then. Military confidence there. Yeah. Yeah. And then later when they finally get the phone and on the morning of December 7th, they notice a suspicious radar blip, a very large one. They call it in and the guy at the other end goes, ah, don't worry about it. It's those B-17s <laughs> coming in from the mainland, which in the wrong direction, it's completely the wrong direction. Yeah. That is one of the tragic mistakes of, of the day there is that mistake of don't worry about it. In fact, people kept like mistaking, like people couldn't believe what was going on. Like the two officers who were coming out of the building as the, as the zero flew, like three top height over, <laughs> get that guy's tail number. I'm going to report him for safety violations. Yeah. yeah. And then it drops its bomb and Ooh. blows up a building. Yeah. An attack of this scale had never been perpetrated. Right. Before the, uh, the British had done something similar against Italy, but it was on a much smaller scale. Right. And then this and a surprise air attack like this. Yeah, just to, to to pull off a surprise like this was had never been done. And and we should explain, too, that Torah, 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 that phrase mm-hmm. was the Japanese. I believe it means tiger, tiger, tiger. It literally means tiger. Yes. But it was yeah, an abbreviation. Was Jap- Good. Oh, OK. It was the Japanese code phrase for we have achieved complete tactical surprise. Right. It, there was a longer phrase. I will not attempt it and offend any Japanese speaker. <laughs> But a longer yeah. phrase, it's a shortened version of a longer phrase that means lightning attack. 
like Blitzkrieg, which is interesting. Blitzkrieg, which is yeah. interesting that that it's, they use the same sort of phrase that the Germans had, and yeah, and it meant we have achieved complete surprise. And and when Fujita says that over the over the the radio, that is a great triumphant moment for the Japanese in this. And you almost cheer for them until you realize, that, no, no, I'm on the other side. It's like it's like a great <laughs> touchdown by the wrong team. Yeah. Right. But you almost have to admire them for the bravado and the fact that they managed it. Yes. Some of the stuff that was really interesting in the, in the build, I, I liked the, the preparation montage. Every movie's going to have a little like action montage. The, 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 like the preparation montage aboard the Japanese ships. I particularly like the simulated bombing run, the low tech simulation of pulling the sheet underneath the plane <laughs> with the painting yeah. of Pearl Harbor on it for the, for the the bombardier to to practice with, I like that. That was really cool. And then the ship recognition quiz with the pilots. Oh, yeah. They show them a, a, a silhouette of of a ship, and they have to name Nevada, Arizona, and then he holds up an aircraft carrier. His Enterprise. That's your ship, you idiot! Boom! It hits him in the head with the board. <laughs> yeah, and they all joke nice. around. It's it's wild, but yeah, I, I enjoyed those those scenes. Were, were were some of my favorite scenes of that. I felt the air raid itself, this movie does a fantastic job of communicating the utter chaos of an air raid. Oh, yeah. There's fires and explosions everywhere, planes all around, guns blasting away, screaming and shouting. There's a lot of quick cuts. So you're disoriented. Yeah. And and then people doing their jobs, the, the guys in the mailroom sending messages. Yeah, they're still doing their job. There was a particularly interesting moment in the mailroom, by the way, when the, the Japanese kid, the civilian kid, like Japanese American brings in the message and all the guys just stared at him and he's clueless right now about it. And all of the mistreatment of the Japanese Americans uh, in, 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 in the yeah. internment, all this, be, all the ones who lived in Hawaii at the time lost their homes, were evicted from homes and lost their property. All of that is contained in this moment in the movie, which is a very interesting, dramatic choice. They, mm. they could have done more with that. But but it's not really what the movie was about. But at least they acknowledge it in a way. Everyone knows what that means. I thought that was an interesting moment. Very yeah, that was very good, Pat. You you mentioned in in terms of the air raid, a, a lot of the special effects in this movie, like the model work and stuff, is pretty outstanding. Oh yeah, actually, it's it's such a fantastic. And you think about the technology of the time and what they were working with, and how well they integrated the model work with the the live action pieces and I, I that's one of my all time favorite things about earlier films prior to the, the what we have now is computer generated almost always is the model work. And, and I can usually tell the difference in a, in a modern film if they've gone with model work or computer generated stuff. And I really love the models and they did such a good job in this movie of making it seem real. Like there's no, there's very few points where I'm sitting there going, I'm looking at a bunch of models, right? Or that that explosion, right. that explosion was just a model. Or it looks they did it such a good job of the shooting, and because you have to shoot all that stuff in slow motion in order to get it to play in like real time, because it, when you do it in a model space, everything moves faster, <laughs> and right. it does and it doesn't. But to get it to look real at, at at a real scale, you have to shoot it differently than you would shoot like a real shot and. The camera work was so good and the editing was so good splicing the real shots and the, the real. I honestly thought some of the set work was 
a lot more fake <laughs> than some of the, yeah, like, yeah. You can see I some green that. screen background stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, it, it was it's really phenomenal the the model work they did with the with the ships and the explosions and the the really really all of the explosions and really to your point, Thomas, they they did a, such a good job of just the utter and complete chaos from the American side of the ball. I want to make a quick correction about the planes. There were no actual Japanese planes. World War II Japanese planes. Just, they were all converted. American planes, the North American T-6 Texans stood in for the Zero. They repainted them. Yeah, and then they had uh, wow. the Volti BT-13 Valiant was the, converted to a vet, the Val dive bombers. And they had the Nakajima torpedo bombers was also a T-6, but a two-seater T- T-6. So they, they, they did a lot of, they did a great job of it because they looked really the paint good. fooled me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looked really great. The chaos you mentioned, the attack on the, on the uh, Hickam airfield, the, all of the American planes just line and just the explosions and the planes trying to take off and like showing like these guys, pilots jumping in these planes, trying to get them in the air and like getting blown up on the runway. And, I'm like, wow, like th- this is all practical effect. This is all really there. This is an amazing work. Although you, I think you were telling us before we started, Thomas, that, that there was a an accident that they made actually part of the movie. Yeah, it's when that one plane spins out of control. I think it crashes into another plane and then blows up and it's it skids around on fire. And you can see it almost crush a poor extra right as he scrambles away. And that was not intended to happen like that. The plane really did careen out of control and almost kill the, the safety standards on this set are not the safety standards <laughs> that they would have today. <laughs> First of all, it would, it would all be CGI, yeah. but, but, but even if it wasn't, I, I felt so bad. And that one scene where the, where the, the ship is on fire and the, the extras are on fire. And I'm like, were, were those stuntmen? Were they supposed to be on fire? I don't know. I think those <laughs> might've been, yeah, actual stuntmen in, okay. in the, in the gel. But, and then there was the yeah, scene. Yeah, the way they had the fire positioned primarily on their back and, and back, the, yeah. those were almost guaranteed to be guys that were supposed to be on fire. <laughs> you can tell the one guy scrambling away from the crashing plane is legit oh, yeah. scrambling for his life. I would. And I did read somewhere that they, it was, they will, we'll just keep it in the movie because it's real. Right. I remember watching that and going, that stuntman's doing great job he's he's getting really close to that wow i can't believe he he, he volunteered to do that oh he didn't <laughs> and then there was the the b-17 did we mention this already the b-17 no so there's a scene where the where the b-17s are coming in and one of them the lead uh, plane can't get its landing gear down it's got one gear down and one gear up and it has to land on the wing with on one landing gear and it turns out that's actual actually was an unintended thing that happened. They, one of the B-17s they had for the movie had a landing gear failure, couldn't get it down. And they had to pancake landed, half landed on one gear. And they're like, they had them circle so they could get the camera set up and incorporated that into the movie. Like they filmed the scene to, to make that part of the movie, which is wild. And so you have this shot of a B-17 crashing for real and it's wow i can't believe they did that oh they did it (laughs) one of the speaking of the attack one of the funniest scenes in the movie is there's a uh, biplane up with a student pilot and uh there's a female instructor and a young young man uh student pilot and they're flying along 
and suddenly they're surrounded by the Japanese planes and they're just staring at each other. Like the Japanese pilots are staring at her and him and they're staring back. And then she's Bobby, I've got the stick. And then she does this acrobatic maneuver to get, get out of there as fast as she could. It's just, I had to laugh when I see that every time I see it, that it's a funny scene. And it all sort of concludes with Halsey coming back with the enterprise and Hall, like throughout the war, like Halsey was one of those take charge admirals. I think they called him Fighting Bull Halsey. And you could you could tell he is enraged yep. that he wasn't well cast to be able to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who, who did play Halsey? Uh, by the, I recognized him, but his name wasn't James. James Whitmore. Okay. Yeah. Classic actor. Great actor. Yeah. But you're right. Halsey was yeah, Bull Halsey was his, his nickname. And yeah, that scene of them coming back into Pearl Harbor afterward, seeing the ships on fire and seeing everything, the devastation. And he basically turns to the captain and says, how soon can we get her out to sea again? You know, tomorrow we'll re- resupply and get out tomorrow because they did. That, that's one of the things is they didn't know what was next. They didn't know if there was, if there was, this was just preparation for a, a ground invasion to take the islands. Yes, yeah. There was a lot of the concerns about that or and they wanted to get the the keep the carriers out there so that they would be a mo- mobile instead of a sitting duck. That's a good point because Nagumo, the commander of the strike force, does not launch the planned third wave to find the aircraft carriers and destroy their do- do- dry docks and fuel depots. He's like, nope, we've accomplished most of what we set out to accomplish, and I don't want to risk the task force. And in a way, you can see his logic. Right. He's very know. conservative. Nagumo was very conservative about the attack and about he didn't want to lose it. these precious carriers. or any, He didn't want to risk them beyond the necessity of executing the plan. And because uh, yeah, he was afraid of car- the U.S. carriers and U.S. submarines. That was the other thing that they didn't know what yeah, was out there. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and at Midway, they lost so many carriers. Yes. So in a sense, he was he was correct to be cautious about it. Yeah, because at that time, Japan's only sitting on a couple more carriers. I don't even know if they're mm-hmm. the big ones, if they're just the light carriers. So he's got almost like it, if you take the position that airplanes and aircraft carriers are it, like he's got the entire almost the entirety of Japan's Navy, like the important part <laughs> under right. his command right now. Yeah. And I think he realizes that and he's we did everything we wanted, pretty much wanted to do, except for the carriers. Let's just call it and get out of here. I, I, I'm ha- I'm literally halfway across the world from help. <laughs> he was probably but it's one of right. those turning points yeah. in history. Yeah, it's one of those turning points because what would have happened if they had destroyed the dry docks? Because you need a way to fix all these ships that have been destroyed. Right which they end up doing. He could have destroyed the fuel depots. He could have made a concerted effort to hunt. Because we had, what, two carriers. Right. The Empire, the Enterprise and Lexington. Yes, yes. And it's, you, you wonder what if, what could have happened. Because if they, if they really demolished the, the dry docks and all the infrastructure, we would have had to, San Diego would have been the, yeah, the, the we had to launch from. And that just wouldn't have worked. Alternatively, if we had managed to sink their carriers out there if our submarines or our carriers had managed to midway when we did do that that was the turning point everything after midway was inevitable it was we were going to win it was it wasn't a question mm-hmm. it was just a question of how how many would die and how long would it take but the the question of whether we would win the war was pretty much settled at midway i think most people agree that to that now so nagumo was right it, it's just it, it was 
pointless because it, we, we would, they would eventually lose them right. at the next battle. Or not literally the next battle, but at Midway. Next battle. Yeah. And Midway and Guadalcanal, because Guadalcanal kind of became their Stalingrad, where it was like, it was the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Where the Japanese just kept pouring men into this vortex that was chewing them up. Yeah. But they, they felt that they couldn't, they, they didn't want to pull out because they'd committed so many men. And so they're like, oh, we'll just keep pouring resources into this battle that we're losing. And, they, and, we, and the Americans are like, fine by us. Yeah. We'll just stay here and keep fighting you. <laughs> right. Just, you know, we'll rely on the, the Australians. And when we run out of them, we've got our guys coming. <laughs> I don't want to uh, overlook the important uh, figure that, that had a nice cameo here, which was we saw a mess man, Doris Miller represented in this battle there was a point where he was the black sailor who mans the anti-aircraft gun and starts shooting back doris miller won the navy cross and was nominated for the medal of honor and he was the first and might have been the only black sailor to win the navy cross in world war ii he's a genuine american hero and i'm really glad to see that they depicted him in the in this in his role in this in this battle in a future film i really want to see depicted the story of the 100th regiment who were the nisei J- japanese american fighters in europe right they didn't send them to the pacific but they fought their way up italy Went to casino to germany Salerno, yeah and they yeah and they won they, they their the unit most, was one of them, the most decorated unit they were right? the most decorated unit in world war ii mr miyagi yeah. was from the karate kid was like he yes. was from that from that unit but yes, they were the most and a famous congressman was like Senator Daniel Inouye, I think was, yeah. was, was also a member of that he had, the, he had a, an injury to his hand that maimed his hand for the rest of his life. But yes, he was, he was Senator from Hawaii and in the nineties, I think in the early two thousands, but yeah, they were the most, that would be a great, someone needs to make that movie there. There needs to be a mini series of band of brothers quality. There's so many, there's so many good stories. There are so many good stories that haven't been told. And it drives me crazy. Every time they remake another, another movie, there's so many good yeah. stories to tell. Why are you redoing this one? Tell, I, tell this. If you were to tell like, like an a kind of ultra drama, like you, you would just do the Japanese government in this time period. Like that's all you could you get five seasons out of this thing, like just oh, yeah. because of how crazy it is, <laughs> yeah, and how dramatic it, it would be. It would be, it would be like Game of Thrones, but in nineteen forties Japan. <laughs> that would be an interesting story to tell. Is that story of behind the Japanese war machine in the nineteen late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties? We really haven't seen that depicted on film, but that would be fascinating. I have a question about the events throw it out to you guys do you think that this attack was a sneak attack was dishonorable and or was it unjust what do you think from the japanese perspective from the american but but objectively speaking was it a dishonorable attack because we it was it was a sneak attack i think i think it was not intended to be because you do get the line in the movie, and it was true that the emperor thought it was of utmost importance that the declaration of war be given or the ultimatum be given prior to the attack right right but that didn't happen and i think because it didn't happen i think it's a by definition it's dishonorable you always go back to that all's fair in love and war right who cares about honor in the middle of a battle that goes into kind of the moral issues involved in war but i think from a like technically correct <laughs> position yeah i think it i think it would i would consider it to be a dishonorable act mm. 
I feel like it doesn't they weren't justified in attacking America in the first place. Right. I feel like they could they we could have worked out our differences and and our differences involved them being in China, which they should never have been there. And we're committing actually truly heinous. Yes. A tri- very there, there's current events going on right now where people are saying we've never heard of these kind of atrocities before, and I'm like, you've never heard of Nanking. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. Just where very similar things took place. The Japanese government, but where heinous atrocities were going on, and where there there were American actually pilots flying for China, right. flying tigers. Yeah, like America was involved. We wanted them out of China. Then, and honestly, they shouldn't have been there. And I know that they felt they were being backed into a corner by the economic sanctions, but th- it was just so that they could get more resources to continue their war in China. And right. I don't think that's a just reasoning. It was all about resources for them to continue. It it it, it, it reminds expansion. me of of of, yeah. of of the of the song War Pigs. The war machine keeps turning, right? And they they need the Tojo and the army need this. They need a war almost to i don't know feel validated but it's yeah so i i i think like less of the the tactics of a preemptive strike and i'm thinking more in terms like your your reasons for going to war with the united states are not just i agree i agree on both counts i think it is it was a dishonorable attack even though there was the individuals involved i don't think yamamoto was dishonorable or or nagumo for per se but i think the the overall the attack was disarmable because it was an act of an act of war to continue their war. And I think it was unjust in the, on that, on that level too. So I just, I just was curious. That is the big moral question here that this movie, it doesn't really, it, it does in a way, it does wrestle with it a bit. We get that speech from secretary hall at the end as he's dismissing the ambassadors. And we, we do get a few hints at, yes, this was, this was, a day of infamy. It was infamous what you did. And it really, if, if it had, if they had declared war and then, then we went to battle like normal, I'm not sure Americans would have been as motivated as we were by this sneak attack, this dastardly sneak attack that really motivated Americans and American soldiers. And it's interesting to think about. And we're and we were able to accept the appalling losses at places like Tarawa and Iwo Jima and Okinawa because of the 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 quote unquote stab in the back narrative became what everybody knew. And there, there was a sense that, yeah, that they that they were fighting people who were were not just evil, but in a way almost like less than human. Yes. Uh, and on, on both sides, there were there were I remember there's a there's a line in, in the miniseries, The Pacific, where they mentioned that the, the Japanese uh, soldiers have been told that U.S. Marines are all people are all ex convicts who have been brought out of the prisons right. and just put like murderers and rapists who have been put in uniform. So you can see on both sides, there's this dehumanization of the other of the enemy. Yes. Going on in, in the in the service of that total war. That we were talking about. And, and I, I think that this antipathy to the Japanese because of Pearl Harbor almost directly led to the justification for bombing civilian cities with, with atomic weapons. And I think it was seen as a just retribution. 
I know there's debates over the the justice of the of the atomic bomb site, but I for me I'm pretty clear. I don't think yeah. there was a there was a moral justification for it. There's actually a book. I think I think it's about the firebombing of Tokyo mm. that is called Retribution. Right. That's 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 simply what it, it was. Yeah. And another movie that. Did they made a movie about this at the time? We called Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo, which I've seen. Oh yeah, but it really needs a remake, and that is the Jimmy do- Colonel Jimmy Doolittle's raid on Tokyo, yeah. which was America's essentially first little victory, right, in the war, yeah. and and the odyssey that those pilots went through after some of them in Japanese prisons after getting shot down, yep. just like truly, like just like horrendous, right. And, and you could tell, like, there there were people like Yamamoto who knew. And at the end of the movie, we get his famous quote where he says, because they're, they're going to perceive it as a stab in the back because this ultimatum did not get to them until the attack already happened two hours ago. And he said, I don't know anything that would infuriate the Americans more than that. And he says his famous, all that we've done is to awaken the sleeping giant. And fill him with a terrible resolve. I've actually heard that there's actually some like historical questions as to like whether he said those exact words, but he surely believed Mm. those sentiments. Yamamoto and the movie just ends there. Yeah, Yamamoto knew Americans. He lived he lived here in Boston actually because he went to Harvard. He had lived in Boston, I think, in Washington for a while too. He was one of the attaches for the signing of the the Russo-Japanese War Treaty to end the war in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a famous. Trivia question my dad would always ask me as a kid. Do you know where they signed? It was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And that was what my, my hometown boy, Theodore Roosevelt, that's, that's right. negotiated that treaty. That's right. And so I grew up like two miles from his house. Oh, that's awesome. But Yamamoto knew Americans and he knew what was going to be the result of of what happened. He knew we are we were all about fair play and the rules of the game and from he knew that from our point of view, the Japanese broke the rules, and it was uh-huh. the gloves will come off at that point. So I think even if the ultimatum had been delivered in time, if we still suffered the same level of casualty, I I don't see a real big difference between what happened and what would have happened uh, in the attitude of Americans. Right in the yeah. attitude of Americans. However, if they had attacked somewhere that made more economic sense like the philippines which is where everybody thought they were going to attack because that was where the resources they needed were if they'd gone that direction i think it would have been a very very different war there still would have been there still would have been an attack on american base but i i don't foresee it being the same kind of like ramp up that we had because of pearl harbor where it was like all right everybody's joining like (laughs) like we're all going to war now (laughs) it would have been probably more like the war in the European theater where, you know, it was slow. We, we started in Africa, then we went up the boot of Italy. And then the, then we had the landings, the overlord landings in D-Day, which was a, a, a slower learning curve. Frankly, there was a lot of Americans had to learn how to fight this war. We didn't, we, we didn't do a good job at the beginning, but yeah, it would, I think, I feel like the war in the Pacific, it would have happened, but it would have been further away would have been probably much more a naval war. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting question how the war would have been different. But I, I do think I agree with you. I do think it would have been different had they attacked the Philippines first. We still would have gone to war, but it would have been a different attitude about it. And Pearl Harbor is almost like 
part of America's like origin story in a way, because in 1940, we had an army smaller than Portugal's. Yeah. And by 1945, we are one of the two global superpowers. Yeah. Yep. It's, and essentially happens overnight in a, in a historical sense. Transition from being the relatively isolationist, mostly farmer, mostly agricultural and, and raw resource producing country to being the, I'm trying to remember Ike's words about what we were coming out of that, the industrial military industrial complex, military industrial complex that America became and the transition from like almost overnight, we're talking two decades, right? Two to three decades, but still it feels almost overnight having lived long enough now (laughs) (laughs) and just the very differentness of America pre and post the two world wars and I think you're right, Thomas. I think for our current national identity, I think there's a lot more connection to the Pearl Harbor event as our beginning than there is to Lexington and Concord anymore, because they're just right. the countries that you get out of the result of those two things are just so very different. Like when you compare pre-war and post-war the United States of America. Its idea is the Great Crusade, as Eisenhower called it, yeah. became baked into the American psyche and we have this self-image as the underdog as well and pearl harbor made us the underdog that fought back and won and beat the bully and i right i think i think there's a there's a self-perception in that and and we like to think of ourselves in those terms i i agree thomas pearl harbor became part of the mythos of america literally yeah pearl harbor is an idiom for dastardly sneak attack the, or a mm-hmm. devastating attack on us because that's his Pearl Harbor. That was a devastation, devastating attack. And I think it's, it's because it's just 9-11 has become for us as well. So it, it is, it is part of our mythos, I, I think. And it's interesting to think how that shaped America over the ensuing decades in the Korean war, the Vietnam war in the eighties and during the cold war. And then even the war on terror in Afghanistan and in Iraq, how that American self-image from that time persisted in in different ways over that period of time. We were still using the language. We like there's the fa- the famous the, the Middle Eastern countries that were labeled as the axis of evil, obviously calling back to the axis alliance. Right. In World War Two, the, the language is still part of our our lexicon. Like you said, Pearl Harbor. I remember on 9-11, like that was on the TV news. That's what everyone was talking about. Right. It was a Pearl Harbor for this generation. Another Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Yeah. We still talk about the people who won World War II as the greatest generation that we label them. We have the founding fathers who founded the country, but the greatest generation was the generation that fought in World War II. And it's interesting. I wonder how much movies like Tortora Tora, but also TV series like Band of Brothers have in more recent years raised up this image of of America again this time this mythological time when the, this generation of giants stood stood up against evil in the world when it was a much simpler it was a simpler time the evil was that, those guys and we were the good guys and and we liked it we liked it to be simple and we liked that image and you know and today it's 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 a muddled world it's it's there's lots of gray area everywhere maybe we like to look back at these earlier times to, to assure us that there was that there can be good and good against evil and good can win. So interesting. 
Yeah, and we and we we plan to release this episode either on or around December seventh. Yes, when we'll be I, releasing. This. I think December seventh is on a Thursday, and that would be our usual date of release for. Yeah, yes. So this is coming out on December seventh. That's awesome. Hey, and a follow up. Maybe we could do a follow up at some point and do the nineteen seventy six Midway movie. Maybe you, you know, do Midway. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a great movie. I I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Not as great as this one, but it was a good one. There, there are well, the num- longest day. The long, oh, one of my favorites is the longest day. That is a fantastic, yeah. a bridge too far about the Operation mm-hmm. Market Garden. There's some great World War II <sighs> movies out there. We were talking about some of the Pearl Harbor related movies before we started. From Here to Eternity, 1953, and then the the Michael Bay one, which don't bother watching. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give a caveat on the Michael Bay one. There is a way to watch that movie where it's good. So uh-huh. the first thing, you skip the first 10 to 15 minutes. There's the, the setting up of the love story between Ben Affleck and all that. Skip that. And then you're on the island, right? And then you're in Hawaii. That's when you really start watching. Yep. You watch that. You watch the attack. You get to Roosevelt's speech. And then you stop. And that's it. <laughs> it's about, about an hour, maybe 45 minutes. It's an excellent movie. It is an excellent movie. Yeah. You watch the rest of it, and it's... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just not good. It's not very good. So if you're gonna watch it, though though that's the target. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The 2019 movie Midway was pretty good too. And Father Chip Pines and I, I, I did really an episode that on that. Yeah, yeah, that was that was it was good. It was a good depiction of the battles, uh, put it that way, the air attacks and that sort of stuff. So yeah, dude, do, do, do you either of you have any closing thoughts on Torah 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 before we wrap up? Or did we pretty much cover everything? <laughs> One last thought I had, which is this is a pretty bloodless, gore-free telling of this story mm-hmm. in, in the style of 1970. Not, not, this isn't Band of Brothers or the Pacific. No, this, Hacksaw Ridge. This isn't like a modern war movie. People were shot by a plane and fell to the ground with no apparent external wound. This was a pretty bloodless, which is good, which means it's, it's family friendly. You can watch it with with the kids, not a problem. If you want to read a good novelized telling of the story of Pearl Harbor, Jeff Shara, uh, his his novel "To Wake the Giant," that's on my list. It's I pretty need to good. Get to it. Yeah, that one. And then he recently came out with the the sequel that's about Midway. And so Jeff Shara does is one of these guys. He 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 takes the historical events and really makes them and tells them through the viewpoint of fictional characters in some cases and real people using as much of the real actual words and events as depicted. So it's, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good novel just to to recommend if you want to go deeper into Pearl Harbor. What about you, Pat? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So there's a scene in it where I, I got it mixed up in my head again, whether it's the general or the admiral who walks out onto his front lawn and he just sees the devastation, right? And that was real. That was a scene that actually happened in real life. He walked, and but his aides there with him because he records his words, and it's basically just, "I'm done for." It's it's this, and I remember. His, I think his daughter has an excellent quote about him, which is, like her her father was the most even keeled man she'd ever met in her life. He never he never changed his emotion at all. He woke up he woke up in a rage and continued throughout the whole day. <laughs> That's good. The other thing I would recommend is there's a series of podcasts called Supernova in the East, and it it does a super, super like you're talking 20 plus hours of in-depth about the Japanese. And it's just about the Japanese. And I think episode three is just Pearl Harbor. It's like an entire four hours on Pearl Harbor. Uh, So if you want to get a real good 
quote unquote succinct <laughs> look at Pearl <laughs> Harbor, I would recommend that Supernova in the mm. East. Excellent. Also, the book Flying Tigers is really good and it gives you some of the background to what's going on in Asia and America's sort of proxy war against Japan in China before Pearl Harbor even happens. Right. Provides some added context and it's a, a pretty interesting book. I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, before we go, though, we'd like to take a moment to thank all our patrons who make this podcast possible, but especially Andrew G, Aaron M, Joseph S, Victor L, and Michael B. Their generous donations allow us to continue to create the secrets of movies and TV shows and all of the shows here at StarQuest. And you can join them at sqpn.com slash give. And now we'd like to hear from you, all our listeners. You can send us an email at secrets at sqpn.com or by commenting on our Facebook page or on YouTube or on Twitter. And you can visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, which is a lot of fun. I'm on there every day. I love our community. So until next time, Dom Bettinelli, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Torah, Torah, Torah. It was my pleasure. And Pat Mason, thank you as well. You're very welcome. And once again, I'm Thomas Salerno. Thank you for listening to the secrets of movies and TV shows on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek.